Chapter Zero of The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners, by Agnes Gibern. Preface by Reverend C. Pritchard, and author's preface. In the year 1879, the proof sheets of a little work entitled Sun, Moon, and Stars, now happily well known, were placed in my hands by a friend who asked me to give a passing glance over their contents. The work appeared to me to be so excellent of its kind, and gave, as I thought, so much promise of public usefulness, that I volunteered gratuitously the offer of a preface, if it were thought that I might thereby contribute to its wider circulation among the intellectual and educated classes, whether older or younger in years. Since then I have been gratified by the fulfillment of this vaticination in the recent appearance of a thirteenth edition, and I think it will be for the public advantage if it shall be even more extensively read. A few weeks ago the same authoress sent me the revised proof of the present work on the varied and wonderful properties of the ocean of air which surrounds our earth, and requested my opinion on the execution and value of the contents. I confess, at first thought, I considered that so extensive and complex a subject required an amount of study and of accurate information which could hardly be expected from an unprofessional author. It would, as it seemed to me, tax the cultivated powers even of Sir John Herschel, and, if successfully executed, might take its place alongside his remarkable familiar lectures. After an hour's cursory perusal, I found myself enchained by the multitude of pleasant thoughts suggested by the description of the physical circumstances surrounded by and immersed in which we pass our being, expressed, moreover, in a language at once so graphic and so simple that I offered for the second time to exert any influence which I might possess in the recommendation of the book to the general notice of educated persons. The points touched upon in the course of the work are very multiform, embracing the greater part of the natural phenomena familiar to us in our daily experience. Heat and cold, the calm and the storm, thunder and lightning, vapor and cloud, rain and dew, the passage of light and of sound, each and all of them in their turns receive their share of illustration in the most pleasant of literary styles. Nor does the authoress hesitate to encounter the marvellous conflicts of the molecules constituting the phenomena of atmospheric pressure and of heat and light, while in due course she extends her flight to the regions of the aurora and of the meteoric dust there floating and luminous, then gradually falling on the earth and on the wide surface of the ocean, and ultimately dredged up in the form of mineral nodules from the remotest depths of the Pacific. A pleasant diversion is then made to the flight of the birds of the air, and to the locusts which are driven onwards by its winds. It is by a fascination of this sort that the reader is, almost unconsciously to himself, led to a general conception of the plan and the forces of that part of the course of nature amidst which he draws his breath and lives. There are more aspects than one in which a little work like the present may be intrinsically valuable, and in which that value reaches to young and old alike. As to the young, it cannot fail to excite those facilities of curiosity and imagination which, when restricted to their proper sphere, are among the most valuable of our natural endowments. In most cases, it will probably satisfy the curiosity which it excites. In respect of those who are of an older growth, 
It must not be forgotten that though most of us are not called upon to become philosophers or experts, still we can, all of us, if we choose, obtain a general and intelligent conception of the nature of the phenomena in the midst of which we live and move and have our being. The amount and the intrinsic accuracy of our conceptions of these phenomena need not be great for the ordinary purposes of life, but to remain willfully and purposely ignorant of their existence and their meaning is hardly worthy of beings who rank themselves among the rational orders of the creation. It will also be found, I think, that very many of our mental enjoyments spring from a knowledge which is far from complete or profound, and that the most pleasant of them are associated with a knowledge which is comparatively superficial. It is in the by-place, the paregra of the intellect, that the better part of the intellectual enjoyment is found. It is in this direction, I think, that we are to look for the chief recommendations of the little book before us. Beyond this, a casual remark here and there will probably touch chords within the mind, which, once so touched, will never cease to vibrate and lead to trains of thought and occupation at once harmonious and beneficent. In this way, a few specks of dust swept up from the hearth and placed under a modern microscope have revealed to the instructed eye the wonders of a tropical jungle and the formation of coal fields therefrom, and thereby have fired the mind with a passionate desire for more extended knowledge of the primeval formations of our globe, and of the structure of the grasses which once have clothed them. It is trifles and accidents such as these which not rarely have determined the whole bent and aim of an intellectual life. Lastly, I think there is another aspect under which this unpretending little book may possess a considerable value, and it is this. The education at our great public schools, and even our universities, is yearly becoming more technical, and is falling more and more under the dominion of cram, and of the schedule, and of the syllabus, and of the examiner. The schoolboy is fast becoming hot-pressed. He is urged by considerations which he cannot resist to maintain or extend the credit of his school, either by conventional distinction, in Greek or Latin, or in what is miscalled natural science, or, if he be hopeless in these directions, he must at all events contribute to its fame by athletic feats. Thus, his young life is marked out for him and trammeled within narrow limits, while the actual bent of his mind and the true reach of his natural capacity become ignored or unsatisfied. In the palmy days of the old school life, the boy, who made but a poor figure in his form, might betake himself to collecting butterflies or beetles, or to keeping mice and dissecting them when dead. In this way, the foundations might be laid for pursuits in life leading to eminence and usefulness. As things are, his natural curiosity too often is stifled, that forward-looking faculty, his imagination becomes atrophied, and his mental endowments molded into a stereotype. From my professional position at the university, it is my misfortune to observe and deplore a very large and mischievous amount of this suppression of curiosity, and a general absence of a knowledge and love of nature, which I take to be the necessary consequence of the modern style of education, when pushed, as it often is, to an extreme. I cannot doubt but that the eminent and highly cultured scholars who adorn the headships of our noble public schools perceive and deplore this result of a system which, through the varied pressures of social life, they are at present unable to control. It is here that I think this little volume, with its multitudinous and interesting peeps into the nature of the things around us, may become signally useful. If I had now the opportunity which I once had, 
I would place Miss Gibern's little volume in the hands of the boys in the upper forms of the school and encourage them to read it as an amusement and for a change of pursuit, under the hope that the pleasant and varied information it contains might find a response and a home not reachable by the ordinary routine of school life. What I have here indicated as serviceable for boys is at least equally so for the other sex. Nor, as I have already said, do I think its interest or utility is limited to the years of our youth, seeing that it was not without a species of fascination that I read it myself. It is, indeed, but a little book, but it treats of many objects and many phenomena of constant occurrence, and it possesses the great advantage that it can be taken up and laid down again piecemeal, and at fragments of time. Bread thus cast upon the waters will be found hereafter in an abundant harvest of pleasant association for hours of contemplation or of leisure. E.N. C. Pritchard, University Observatory, October 1889. Author's Preface After the generous words of Dr. Pritchard about my little book, there is small need for me to say much. First and foremost, I must express my hearty gratitude, not only for the warm praise which he has accorded, but also for the infinite trouble which he has taken in reading the revise, pointing out some weaknesses and here and there suggesting improvements. I can never forget what I owe to his kindness, both with this book and with Sun, Moon, and Stars. In writing The Oceans of Air, I have had a wish to make it one of a trio of volumes. It may be said to occupy a position between my two earlier scientific books, Sun, Moon, and Stars, had for its subject the vast realms of space, dotted with suns and worlds. The world's foundations had for its subject the crust of our earth and the story of the crust formation. The ocean of air has for its subject the expanse dividing the two, that broad belt of atmosphere which rests upon the earth's crust and reaches upward to surrounding space. I might end with a catalogue of books, encyclopedias, to which I have had recourse for information, but many of them are referred to in the following pages, and the entire list would be cumbrously long. So I will only close with a word of particular acknowledgement to the authors of any extracts which I have ventured to make without writing to ask express leave. I trust that, in such cases, the omissions will be pardoned. Wharton House, Eastburn, October 1889 End of chapter zero.